you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 13 of Reclaiming the Faith, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey everyone, thank you so much for taking time to listen to the program. Thank you so much for praying for me. Thank you so much for praying for uh, my partners, BDK and Justin Fall. Um, we we need your prayers and, and we are carried by your prayers. We are so thankful for it. Thank you so much for your support. Well, in, uh, in episode 13, I'm going to be getting back into my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ. And as with chapters one through three, I'll be giving you an audio version of chapter four, which is called Hyperbolic Jesus. And just for a little bit of context, in the previous chapter, chapter three, I began to discuss how the earliest Christians took Jesus's words very simply and very seriously, even when it came to loving their enemies. And so now in chapter four, I continue to examine that idea, specifically around Jesus' command to cut off our hands and pluck out our eyes if they cause us to sin. Well, you can find this book on Amazon, and if it's a blessing to you, please leave an honest review there. Similarly, if you've been blessed by this episode and Reclaiming the Faith, I'd really appreciate it if you leave an honest review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And also, if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at my website, reclaimingthefaith.podbean.com, or you can email me at emailphilsbaker at gmail.com. Like I said, I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And in addition to our own channels, you can find each of our podcasts at the Fourth Watch Radio uh, website or on the Fourth Watch Radio podcast. And finally, the early Christian quotes I generally use can be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, and you can purchase your copy for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. That's scrollpublishing.com. So go check that out. All right, let's get into episode 13 called Hyperbolic Jesus. When I was in high school, a few friends and I skipped school one day, and we went to an understaffed electronics store. My friends had figured out how to remove the sensor from the CDs to prevent the store's alarm from tripping when they walked out with them under their jackets. The first time we went, I was terrified that we would end up on the evening news. My conscience chided me for being an accomplice to a theft, and it rebuked me for making fun of folks who experienced urinary incontinence in moments of duress. I watched in disbelief as the whole process went down. One of my friends even picked up a CD for me since I was the driver. 
The next time I went, I picked one up for myself, and then another. I think I stole about three CDs from that store that year. To some, my actions may not seem like a big deal. To others, the opposite may be true. But what about Jesus? Does he have anything to say on the matter? Actually, he does. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 48. Jesus said, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Jesus says some harsh things in the Gospels, and these words are definitely near the top of the list. As we discussed in the last chapter, Jesus' command to love our enemies is not hyperbole nor metaphor, but literal. It would seem then that in this situation, Jesus is commanding me to cut off my hand for stealing the CDs and probably to pluck out one eye for coveting the CDs. Some Middle Eastern countries actually cut off the hands of thieves, and not surprisingly, these places have quite low crime rates. So, is Jesus serious? I mean, clearly he is serious about sin, but does he really want me to cut off my hand and pluck out my eye so that I don't have to go to hell? Well, to answer these important questions, we need to ask some other important questions. First, are there examples in the Gospels of Jesus' disciples or potential disciples sinning with their eyes and hands in front of Jesus? Second, if there are examples, how did Jesus handle those situations? By analyzing those scenarios, we will be able to determine if Jesus literally calls us to cripple ourselves in order to avoid hell. Jesus spent a significant amount of time talking about mankind's approach toward money. One of his most famous quotes comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 through 24, where he explains how selfishness, materialism, greed, and even theft are all examples of I-sins, E-Y-E sins. He states, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The I, what we value, will determine how we behave and how we treat people, things, and even God. The gospel writers depict Judas as having bad eyes. Six days before Jesus is crucified, he is at the home of his cousin Lazarus, whom he previously raised from the dead. And while Jesus is reclining at the table, Lazarus' sister Mary anoints Jesus' feet with a pound of pure nard to prepare him for his upcoming burial. This perfume was valuable, and to use all of it on Jesus was a generous and self-sacrificial act. The bottle would have cost Mary around 11 months' wages. Jesus commends Mary for her loving act, but Judas responds in a diametrically opposed manner. John writes about this in chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. But Judas, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Jesus and Mary have good eyes and value the things God values. But Judas's eyes, however, are corrupted. So Jesus rebukes Judas for rebuking Mary, but he doesn't ask for a spoon so Judas can pluck out his greedy eye. Interesting. Later, when Jesus and his disciples are eating the Passover meal on the night he will be arrested, Jesus tells them one of them will betray him. The disciples begin discussing who would do such a horrible thing, and then, can you believe it? An argument breaks out concerning which one of them is the greatest. Try to imagine that conversation. As the grim reality of Jesus' impending betrayal, abandonment, denial, torture, and crucifixion begin to cause Jesus great distress, John cries out, I'm his favorite. Matthew replies, Hey, I threw a huge party for Jesus with my money when I left my tax collecting booth. And Peter shouts, I walked on water while all you cowards stayed in the boat. Talk about awkward moments. And just a few moments later, Jesus says to the group, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you all like wheat, but I have prayed for you all that your faith will not fail. When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, 
But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along, and likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. That's Luke chapter 22, verse 31, 35 through 37. Strange, isn't it? That throughout Jesus's ministry, he has commanded his disciples to love their enemies and their neighbors as themselves. And yet now, now he seems to be advocating the use of violence. Notice how Jesus reminds the disciples of their commissioning in Luke 9, how they went out preaching the gospel against all odds. They depended on God to meet even their most basic needs, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, they healed people everywhere. Now, Jesus tells the disciples that Because he's about to be betrayed, they should sell their coats for swords. And when the disciples bring to his attention that they already have two swords, Jesus tells them that is enough. Wait a minute. Two swords are enough for the revolution? Is it possible that Jesus has not, in fact, changed his stance on violence, but is rather choosing to make the most of a teachable moment, even at this tremendously stressful hour of his life? Why are the disciples supposed to sell their coats to buy swords? Well, according to Jesus, The remaining disciples needed to have swords for the moment he would be betrayed, so he would be numbered among transgressors, as the prophecy in Isaiah 53.12 declared. Therefore, we now ask the question, did any transgressions committed with swords occur among any of the eleven disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane during Jesus' arrest? Well, we will begin by examining Mark's account of the incident. This is in chapter 14, verse 43 through 50. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures." 
and they all left him and fled. In Mark's account, Jesus lives out his own command to not resist the evil person and then rebukes his captors for bringing swords and clubs to apprehend him. It's strange, considering a little while ago, Jesus gave his disciples permission to bring two swords to the scene. And Jesus concludes his rebuke by informing them that their sinful actions have just fulfilled ancient prophecies concerning the Messiah. Mark's account was most likely the earliest of the four Gospels. His is also the most concise. Matthew's account, also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sheds more light on this defining moment in history. Matthew reveals in his account, told in Matthew chapter 26, verse 47 through 56, a level of compassion in Jesus that seems otherworldly. Not only does Jesus practice his message of nonviolent resistance toward his betrayer, Judas, and the arresting mob, but he also does good to those who hate him and is merciful as his heavenly Father is merciful. Earlier in his three-year ministry, Jesus had warned Judas that one of the disciples would betray him. And now, instead of destroying Judas there on the spot, Jesus calls Judas a friend and allows him to go through with this villainous deed in order to fulfill the scriptures. In Mark's account, it is at this point that one of the disciples slices off an ear of the slave of the high priest. Jesus then rebukes the mob for coming to arrest him with swords and clubs as if he were a bandit. But Matthew, however, reveals that before Jesus rebukes the mob, he rebukes the disciple for living by the sword and commands him to put the sword back in its place. He then calls the disciple to think rationally. If Jesus truly is the Messiah, as the disciple professes he is, then he has 12 legions of angels at his command. And in biblical times, a legion was said to consist of around 6,000 Roman soldiers. So, at any particular moment, Jesus could summon 72,000 angels to go to war for him. The Lord Jesus does not need worldly weapons to fight his battles. What about Luke? What jewels does he uncover at the scene of the crime in his account told in Luke 22, verse 47 through 53? First, Luke lets us know that when the disciples saw Jesus was about to be arrested, they asked if they should attack with the two swords that Jesus told them to bring. From the earlier verses, where Jesus told them to sell their coats for swords, we might expect Jesus to say, Yes, now, attack! But Jesus remains silent. 
Why does Jesus not tell them to resist the evildoers? Why does he not give them the okay to harm his betrayer and arresters? Why does he not tell them to wage war with worldly weapons? If there was ever a time for a just war, this is it. Yet Jesus does not give the go-ahead. Jesus is not a hypocrite. He is not going to contradict himself, even when his back is against the wall. Jesus is going to walk the talk and practice what he preaches, and he expects his followers to do the same. Therefore, when his disciple cuts off the right ear of the slave, Jesus tells him, Stop! No more of this. Then, continuing to practice what he preaches, Jesus blesses his persecutors by healing the ear of the slave. Jesus didn't utter empty words. When he called his disciples to follow him, he meant it. Jesus is the way that we are to follow. John wrote the last gospel, most likely between 90 and 100 AD. His account of the incident is not dissimilar from the other gospels, but the details he adds bear tremendous significance on this story. In his account, Jesus and his disciples were not merely up against a ragtag mob sent by the chief priests and the Pharisees. Rather, they were up against a Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. Now, history tells us that a Roman cohort is a battalion of soldiers numbering around 600 men. Needless to say, the Jewish authorities were planning on making the most of this opportunity. In their minds, there was no way they were going to let Jesus avoid capture again, as he had every time before. And just in case of a power play, the chief priests and Pharisees brought in the big guns to subdue this supposed troubler of Israel and the world. Let's look at what John writes in uh, chapter 18, verse 3 through 11. He says this, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you, 
that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? As it turns out, a power play did ensue, and what it reveals is astonishing. Jesus walks right up to the Roman soldiers and Jewish officers and asks them whom they are seeking. They answer, Jesus the Nazarene, to which Jesus replies, I am he. And interestingly, the translators added the word he into this text for grammatical reasons. Because what Jesus actually says is, I am. At these words, the entire army of arresters, including Jesus, draws back and falls to the ground. Then Jesus tells them, if they have come to arrest him, they should let the others go. And at this point, they still have not moved. Imagine hundreds of trained soldiers and officers on the ground, only able to listen to Jesus. I've never seen anything like this in my near three and a half decades. All the crazy arrests I've seen on cops, the evening news reports, and even YouTube pale in comparison to what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. When Jesus said, I am, he was quoting Exodus 3, where the Lord God appears to Moses in a burning bush and tells him his plan for Moses to lead the Hebrews out of bondage. In verse 13, a curious yet terrified Moses says to the Almighty God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And now they may say to me, What is his name? So what shall I say to them? And God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When Jesus tells his arresters, I am, he is teaching them a powerful lesson. He is not only the Messiah, but also the one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. He is the Lord God. And if he is the Lord God, he is the source of all power. No human army can stop him. He calls the shots. All he has to do is peel back the curtain a tad and show folks a bit of his divinity, and we would all be forced to acknowledge that he is God. Chuck Swindoll writes of John's account. He says, 
quote, Jesus again employed the highly significant self-designation ego eimi, I am. John rarely includes details unless they have theological significance. The enemies of God shrank before the presence of the Almighty, foreshadowing their posture at the end of time. Unquote. If Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord God, gave each of these men what they deserved, they would all be annihilated. But Jesus didn't do anything different than what he had been doing over the last three years of his ministry. He did not come to lord his power over people, but to serve God by serving us all. John informs us that Malchus is the name of the high priest's slave who was assaulted by the disciple wielding his sword. John also clues us in that Peter, the disciple who a few hours ago brashly boasted of his greatness and faithfulness to Jesus, is the very one who again is not pursuing God's interests, but man's interests by attacking the subdued Malchus. So why does John pause to give us the name of the man whose ear Jesus healed? Well, Malchus's name means kingly one. And this detail begs the question as to who acts more like King Jesus in this scene? Judas? Peter or Malchus. Jesus had commanded his followers in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 39. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Malchus left quite a testimony. All four gospel writers remained silent about his actions after the assault. And the most logical explanation for this omission is that neither Jesus nor anyone else had to break up a brawl between Peter and Malchus in order for Jesus to heal his ear. Malchus was not even a follower of Jesus, and yet he, rather than Judas and Peter, seems to be the one most imitating the meekness of the king. None of the gospel writers record any retaliatory words or actions by Malchus. Similarly, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah, Jesus, the suffering servant and true king of Israel, while meekly and quietly taking the people's sin on himself, would not do any violence. The meek inherit the earth. They don't betray, bully, and hurt others to obtain it for themselves. Meek Malchus left room for the wrath of God, he left room for God to repay, and in doing so, he became the recipient of a blatant 
miraculous demonstration of God's love, compassion, and healing power. In Malchus's testimony, I recognize that my actions don't reflect the actions of my king as consistently or purely as they should. In fact, as someone who identifies himself as a Christian, my portrayal of Christ to the world is often skewed with hypocrisy. My eyes and hands have willfully engaged in sin more times than I can imagine. I've valued countless things above God and hurt countless others for the sake of those idols. My eyes deserve to be plucked out and my hands deserve to be cut off. Though Jesus does not demand either of Judas, Peter, or us. His earlier words in Mark chapter 9 and his actions here demonstrate how serious he is about sin. In one sense, Jesus wasn't using hyperbole. It actually would be better for Judas, Peter, Malchus, or any of us to enter eternal life crippled rather than having two eyes or two hands and go into the unquenchable fires of hell. But part of the good news is that because Jesus absorbed all our sin on himself on the cross and then victoriously rose from the dead on the third day, Those who put their faith entirely in him and follow his way will be completely and permanently healed in the end, even if their bodies are killed by their persecutors. But what about Judas? If it was prophesied that he would betray Jesus, did he really have a shot at having faith in Jesus and receiving eternal life? If not, What does that say about God, who supposedly so loves the world? Well, we will look at these questions and many more in the next chapter. As you continue reading, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. When days feel like a carousel that's never coming to an end The monotony's a prison cell with atrophy its closest friend Surely we were made for more, surely this isn't all there is The comforts we've been praying for have stolen oh so many years Oh, the joy set before Him when our Lord endured the cross Is the joy He has offered to those near and to those far It's the blessing of a servant to the least and to the lost He's the only life worth living, the only life that's worth the cost 
A treadmill life's a tragedy It's not a man or woman free But freedom's not autonomy No matter how it seems to be No government can legislate The liberty the spirit gives And no country can emancipate The slaves the way my savior did Oh, the joy set before him when our Lord endured the cross Is the joy he has offered to those near and to those far It's the blessing of a servant to the least and to the lost He's the only life worth living, the only life that's worth the cost Benefit to billionaires out before the King of Kings. Cause he will not be bribed or bartered with, but everyone will bow their knee. When we all behold his majesty, we'll count all that's left as loss. He's the only life worth living, the only life that's worth the cost. He's the only life worth living, the only life that's worth the